Welcome to the AJPH Monthly Podcast. You just heard Kofo the Wonderman. He's a master drummer from Nigeria. And he warns us in Yoruba of the imminent arrival of a tornado. And indeed, what happens before, during, and after natural disasters, which is relevant for public health, is the theme of this podcast. The hurricanes that have devastated the coast of the United States and the Caribbean, and the wildfires that are still causing havoc, as I speak in California, are announcing a new normal in public health. A time in which natural disasters, destroying or severely maiming increasingly large communities, will occur and recur, and most likely at an accelerating pace over the century. It is therefore important to understand this phenomena and consider all options to control their catastrophic consequences. With my guests, I will discuss what it is to be victim of Hurricane Irma in Florida and Hurricanes Irma and Maria in Puerto Rico, what can be done preventively to mitigate the humanitarian and environmental consequences of hurricanes, and what can be done after the disaster to rebuild often poorly built communities the right way, as was done after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. We will end up discussing whether and how this new public health normal is linked to climate change. I am Alfredo Morabia, the editor-in-chief of the journal. This is December 8th, 2017. Tara Zolnikov stayed in her house in Florida under Hurricane Irma and stresses in her editorial that hurricanes and other natural disasters are humanitarian crises. Tara is an assistant professor at the National University School of Health and Human Services in San Diego, and she's also an auto-ethnographer who contributes regularly to AJPH. I'm now calling Tara Zolnikov. Hello, Tara. Hi. Where are you? Um, I'm, I'm actually right now in Florida. In your home? Yes, in my, in my house. Working where, from where, home. I see. Where, and this was the place where you were when uh, uh, Irma came. Yeah, this is, this is where I was. And actually, it's funny enough, but our refuse was just picked up uh, last week. So that was so what, a prolonged... What does it mean? <laughs> what, what does it mean? Basically, um, all of the landscaping, the trees that fall down, everything, everyone has huge piles of refuse in front of their houses. And it blocks the roads and it sits out on the road for months. And um, I think it's been, I mean, three months. It's been a while. Two months. Yeah, yeah no, no, um, no. September, yeah. October, it's three months, yeah. Yeah, and so it starts to decay and then it like spreads into the streets. And it's just, you know, it's just... First of all, it's an eyesore, but secondly, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's just tough. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're freed of, of, of this, uh, this aspect. I mean, the, this was the residual of, of the, of the hurricane, the way yeah, it hit just, your house. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so Tara, you, you're an 
autho-ethnographer. And when uh, Hurricane Irma was coming, he said you were going to your house because you live in, in California to live the experience, to tell the tale, right? Yeah, exactly. So how did you come to this decision well, to go I mean, there I... and face the danger, etc.? I, it was, it was actually the, the moment it's weird because hurricanes are like, you actually have time before you know it's going to hit. And there's this sort of anxiety that builds up because you don't know the projected path. If, if it's going to hit your house, um, or not, you don't know how strong it's going to be. It's like all this anticipation that happens and it's actually sometimes can be worse. You know, the anticipation of, I don't know, giving a talk. It, it's so much worse than actually giving the talk, right? Afterwards, you're like, eh, it wasn't that bad. Um, but I feel like the hurricane sort of kind of is kind of in the same vein. I mean, it, I was lucky enough to say that this time, mm -hmm. but I, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And, but then there was this moment of clarity, like, oh, this would actually be a really good experience because this is what I do. And there are millions of people that are going through this. And maybe I can recount the story and give a little more, you know, shed some light on, onto what people are experiencing. Mm -hmm. Because as from someone from Montana, I, I don't get that. I don't understand the hurricane thing. And then the people, a lot of my friends and um, colleagues in Florida, they don't understand the wildfire thing. So it's kind of like once you live in both, then you can say, oh, I get this. Let me shed some light on it, the issue. So so tell us, tell us then, what, what did you experience? How, how was it to be, uh, to, to be facing the coming of a hurricane? So it was, um, it was weird because that anxiety that builds up, it, it kind of, it lasts a really long time. And the hurricane, it's not like this one hour isolated event. It actually lasts like eight, 12 hours. Um, so it begins by, you know, the rain picks up and then the wind picks up. And then, um, and then shortly after that, like the power goes out and the water stops working and you lose, um, you know, telephone service and stuff like that. Not cell phone service per se, but you kind of start losing those aspects of life that you're kind of used to. Wow. Um, it was, I definitely remember the house then turning very, it was very hot um, because you're kind of like trapped because you're, everything is blocked off. You've closed everything and there's just like no air in the house. Mm -hmm. um, so our house then started, um, it started flooding because the, the rain was coming, coming hard from the uh, east side. And it was kind of horizontal rain coming into slamming into the windows and the doors. So what I ended up doing was grabbing, um, all these, every towel in the house, like we have a pool. So I say we were lucky and I grabbed about 50 towels and I would ran around the house plugging the window sills and door sills with towels and then circulating once they got soaked, shoving a new towel in there. Well, it was during this time that I actually ran across a little river in my house. And I thought, oh, great, where is this? Where is this coming from? And I looked into a room and I could see that it was flooded about two inches of water. And it was wow. at this exact moment that my my partner came out and he was like, oh, my God, my my office is flooding. And so 
then we had to switch gears and we got out the mops and we were just extensively, you know, soaking up, you know, trying to soak up this water, but it was just coming and coming and coming. And so I guess, you know, it was a little stressful. I ended up passing out from exhaustion at about 1 a.m. and he kept going until 6 a.m. the next morning. And but so way, at some point before <laughs> passing, uh, how, <laughs> did, uh, did you regret your decision to stay home? It's it was weird because you kind of like he didn't regret his decision because he never had a second to think about it. It was only me when I was lying in bed with my toddler and the wind was screaming and ripping at the roof and it was hot. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm not even sure I'm going to be able to sleep that I actually was like, Why am I here? <laughs> Will I be doing this again? And, you know, I guess if I said, would I do it again? Mm -hmm. um, I probably would say no, because we, unlike many Americans, actually have several houses that we could visit outside the States, mm -hmm. um, outside, you know, Florida and California. We have several properties. And so... Um, I think for my own safety, I would leave and the safety of my child. But I'll tell you one person who's not going to leave. And that is my partner. <laughs> He has decided like our, I mean, that would have ruined, you know, as much damage as we had thousands of dollars worth of damage, it would have incurred even more damage. So I think the mindset of people is kind of similar in that they think they can kind of catch things while they happen mm -hmm. so that you know, maybe some costs can be reduced because it's a very financial taxing um, thing to kind of go through as well. But Sarah, so, just, just before we get to that, uh, the, if something had happened, some, someone had been injured or you had some need of urgent healthcare services, what would you have done? Honestly, it's kind of scary to think about that. I, I, we were not hurt. I did not have any friends that were hurt. But, you know, I don't know what you would have done because a lot of hospitals evacuated. They didn't have humongous generators that were keeping electricity on. They just left. And so there you didn't really have any healthcare services available. And in addition to that, the roads, you cannot pass the roads. Half the roads were flooded. The other half were just covered with, hu hu I mean, huge branches, impassable. You know, unless you have, I guess, a big Jeep Wrangler or something, but you would not, I don't know where you would go and how you would get there. And so it, that's definitely a scary, scary thing to think about. Yeah. And that, that uh, brings us to uh, the, the title you gave to the editorial you wrote uh, to, in the journal that um, hurricanes can be a source of uh, humanitarian crisis. And so I was very interested in this qualification because usually what we call humanitarian crises are civil wars, drought, uh, earthquakes, etc. So can you qualify, you know, why um, you chose that term and, and, and why do you think it applies to situations that are going to become very common in the United States? Yeah, absolutely. So I think by definition, these hurricanes are definitely humanitarian crises. So a humanitarian crisis is defined as an event or series of events that is cr a critical threat 
to the health, safety, security, or well-being of a community or population. Just by those terms alone, these, this definitely fits in that. So, for example, health was threatened because healthcare services were temporarily suspended or unavailable. Water was also unavailable. Most people lost their water for a week or more, and or people may have been exposed to contaminated water sources. So when people did have water, um, there was a boil order out for it. So you couldn't actually use that water. Now, safety became an issue because people's houses were broken and there were, you know, people have to live in these structures that were damaged. Security was threatened because of the inability to call police because all, all phone and other cell phone services were suspended and there were many, you know, possible looters and thieves breaking into unmanned or broken houses. And then also, again, like I mentioned, the roads were blocked. So if you called and you needed help, it might not ever reach you. So then the community as a whole is affected because people are trying to piece their lives back together. Everyone is like suspended in this strange moment where life is, is abnormal. People don't have electricity. People don't have water. They don't, they're not going to school. They're not going to work. And so it's the whole community. Everybody is trying to just get through this together. And so I think by, you know, those aspects that this, these hurricanes will be considered humanitarian crises. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Tara, thank you so much. I mean, you said you would live to tell the tale, and I think that's exactly what you did. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you for Yeah, this absolutely. Thank, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Two hurricanes ripped through Puerto Rico last September and October. Carlos Rodriguez Diaz, who is associate professor at the Graduate School of Public Health at the University of Puerto Rico in San Juan, was on the islands during both episodes. Let's call him. Tell me, Carlos, where are you now? Um, right now, I'm in San Juan, Puerto Rico. This is home and is also where I work at the University of Puerto Rico Medical Sciences campus. Uh, I mean, my office in the School of Public Health. I see. And were you there uh, in September when uh, the hurricanes came? Yes, I was here in Puerto Rico for both of the hurricanes. Um, I was here for um, Irma. And, uh, well, unfortunately, we were hit by Maria just 10 days after we experienced um, Irma here uh, in Puerto Rico. So give me just one memory you have of these events, of, of something that really struck you. Uh, during those hurricanes? One thing that, that stands out? Well, um, I would say that uh, one of the hardest memories that I have right now is the uh, time that I drove to my hometown in Aguas Buenas. Uh, I drove there uh, probably 36 hours after uh, Maria. Uh, I was with my mom and my partner in the car. And we drove there because I have family that spent the hurricane there, and we wanted to know that they were fine. We had no idea how they were because communications were not working um, in most of the islands. And um, 
It's a usually a 35-minute drive. That day took us probably 90 minutes to get from San Juan to my hometown in Aguas Buenas. And um, we were impressed by the level of destruction, specifically uh, how nature um, responded. You know, we we saw basically barren areas where there was no tree, no green. And um, that was very shocking because our island is so beautiful. Uh, it's so green, so tropical. And right after the hurricane looked like a an area that uh, a bomb exploded. And that was very hard to digest. And so why did it take 90 minutes? Because there they were uh, trees on the road and things like that? Or because of yeah, the it, winds? Or? Yeah, it was It was basically, uh, we were, we drove very, uh, uh, we were a little risky, if you, if you will. Um, you know, after 36 hours, there was a lot of debris still on the road. Um, we were not sure um, after the highway if we would find access to to my hometown because uh, there is a big section that is just highway and a highway that usually have three lines each way was only having one. And then we were not sure if the bridges that connect um, all the way to, to Aguas Buenas were in place and how were the conditions of the roads. So I was driving carefully and also you know, considering the, the limited space that we have compared to what normally we have on the way there. Got it. And tell me, Carlos, now uh, three months later, uh, can, what's the current situation on the island? Well, so after nearly three months after the hurricane, uh, I would say that Puerto Rico is far behind what we could be uh, expecting or consider after proper emergency response and recovery. Um, based on the numbers provided by the government, we haven't been able to fully restore access to clean water, telecommunication services, or power generation. Um, similarly, there are still gas stations and supermarkets that have been unable to return to business. In fact, most of the, uh, you know, the, the most pressing issue right now is power services. Um, and it's still estimated that nearly 50% of the households in Puerto Rico still don't have reliable electricity services in place. So that's, that's the status. Um, it still feels like so, so the hurricane mean, was a couple of weeks ago. I see. And so so people have electricity for a few hours a day? Or what's the situation? Because how can they survive without electricity? So most, uh, based on, 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 on statistics, um, at least 50% of the population still is waiting for to have the electricity services restored in their households. So they have been without any kind of electricity service for over uh, 75 days now. Um, some, uh, the other 50%, if you will, uh, is getting access to electricity but uh, power outage are very common. Um, with As the time is passing, the power outages are becoming less frequent. But unfortunately, our system was very weak. And right now, what the government and the institutions working uh, in the area, what they're doing is restoring service, so making sure that people can have access to power, but it's not restoring the system. So the system remains weak. And as more people are, uh, more households are connected to the system, the system is being tested. So 
uh, it is not expected that the system will be in place until next year. I see. And what about uh, drinkable water? Mm -hmm. So based on data that I checked this morning, uh, government reports that 90% of the household have access to uh, water. Um, but a main issue here is, is, is stability and the quality of water. Most of the water systems in Puerto Rico um, needs electricity in order to properly work uh, and to provide really clean water. That, um, and not having the power system in place is also challenging the sustainability of the plants that process water. And that has an impact on the quality of water. So right now, um, the report of 90% of the household having access to water only speaks of access to water, not necessarily to the quality of the water that they're getting. And unfortunately, um, at this point, I don't have the data and I don't think that we are conducting all the possible or the necessary analysis, I should say, to document that, that the quality of the water that the households are getting. So that's why we are still recommending um, a proper management of, of water in order to avoid um, epidemics related to uh, water, well, contaminated water. So you mean people drink uh, water in bottles? So, yes. Or, or they can use the tap water. So under normal circumstances, uh, the tap water in Puerto Rico is drinkable. It's it's safe. But we are not under normal circumstances. So the, the overall recommendation is uh, to either boil water, use filters, and uh, bottle water. I see. And what about food? What's the situation there? Well, you know, uh, that's the virus are in the island. Um, access to food is out there. You know, restaurants are starting to provide services. Um, most of the relief efforts that uh, came to the island um, have been bringing uh, non-perishable products. And then different organizations and government entities uh, have been making those uh, available to the communities that are in needs. But of course, the farthest you go from the metropolitan area of San Juan, the needs and the way the services are being provided changes. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think that there is a, com a, a community that at this point don't have access to food. However, uh, perhaps we are not necessarily reporting properly on those communities that are at, different, at, at a different level of vulnerability because of access. There are still several communities in Puerto Rico that, they, that have very challenging uh, ways of getting access out of their physical community because the bridges and the roads are not in place still. So how would you characterize those communities which appear to be the most vulnerable to the hurricane impact? So, so as many people might know, Puerto Rico was already undergoing what's been called a financial crisis, and many austerity measures and laws have been in place. That was that, and and those uh, measures were putting certain populations at risk, if specifically people that are poor in rural areas, or unemployed, or otherwise socially marginalized, and those are the ones that are now more affected in the aftermath of the hurricane. Because, of course, the hurricane just worsened their vulnerability. Um, 
And to my understanding, those are the communities that requires more efforts in order to bring, um, I would not say normality because the normality before the hurricane was not necessarily the best scenario. But if we were to address the inequities that were affecting certain populations in the island, um, those are the, the populations that need more attention at this point. Mm-hmm. And those are also populations that are less likely to emigrate or? Well, yeah, the, so that's, that's another conversation. The, the impact of the hurricane in migration, um, I've seen estimates from 80 to 100,000 people emigrating from Puerto Rico in the last two months. But those are the ones that have the resources or have the connections in the diaspora to get help uh, to leave the island. But those that are most vulnerable don't have the resources to, to migrate, even if they want to. Yeah. And so what would you say, Carlos, is, uh, is most urgently needed right now in Puerto Rico? From my perspective, the most urgent need is to continue supporting uh, specifically community-based initiatives that are responding to the emerging needs uh, with those communities that are more vulnerable. Um, I will call for those who wants to support either with goods or financial support to uh, do it through community and local non-governmental organizations. There are several trusted organizations who are in, in the ground doing the work that can get support to continue doing what they're doing. And finally, I believe that continuing the discussion about the current political and economic situation of Puerto Rico within the United States is crucial in order to impact the structural barriers for health equity in Puerto Rico. Thank you. Thank you, Carlos. Uh, This is uh, an incredible uh, testimony of what's happening there. And uh, thank you very much for your time and for what you're doing there. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Now that we have discussed what it is to live through a hurricane for a household and a community, let's see what can be done to mitigate its impact. This is the expertise of Maureen Lichtfeld, who is a professor and chair of the Department of Global Environmental Health Science at Tulane University in New Orleans, where in 2005, Hurricane Katrina caused havoc and killed nearly 2,000 people. Alfredo. Hey, where are you, Maureen? I am in New Orleans, and it's beautiful here. Wonderful. In the... Now, we're, how many years after Katrina are we now? Um, well, Katrina was in 2005 because that's actually three weeks after I started as chair of the Department of Global Environmental Sciences here at Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. So I clearly remember that. And uh, so what has changed since then um, from your what perspective? Has changed, what has changed is that... Um, Increasingly, the city is vibrant. Um, We have a lot of entrepreneurial startup companies. But what we still have, even after 12 years, is that um, many communities are still living at the intersect of persistent disasters that come, of course, annually, the natural disasters, um, environmental health threats, and a historic burden of health disparities. 
It is that historic burden and the risk of where they live makes them especially vulnerable when disasters, both naturally and technological disasters, occur. Yeah, yeah. And Maureen, I know that's, that's where your expertise lies. So how would you characterize those uh, communities which are the most vulnerable uh, in case of uh, natural or technological uh, disasters? First, um, throughout uh, Louisiana's history, and while we're improving now, there has been a fragile health infrastructure and people living on the margins of society. They are the low-income vulnerable populations, many of them minorities, African-Americans, Hispanic and Native Americans, um, as well as Cajuns. And so that historic burden of health disparities is compounded by living in lower coastal areas where flooding always happens when uh, a natural disaster occurs. Uh, that combination, as well as living in areas where there are active manufacturing occurring, those three intersecting risks put them uh, at a higher degree of vulnerability and in fact are decreasing their resilience, both individual resilience as well as community resilience. So you mean the, the, the communities that were already uh, in, in the lower economic uh, level that were already vulnerable to the, the, the chronic stressors in our society have been most hit by this hurricane, right? Correct. So not only do they have acute stressors, stressors that come every year with disasters, but they also have chronic stressors, stressors of psychosocial stresses, stresses about income, stresses um, to make sure that the seafood is safe to eat, which it is. Um, so everybody should come and have a shrimp po' boy because it's excellent to eat. As you know, New Orleans has fantastic food. Uh, but their, um, their ability and their capacity to recover, whether it's from a natural or a technological disaster, is much less uh, than someone who doesn't live with that burden of health disparities. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, I mean, these population who live uh, uh, from paycheck to paycheck, you know, wh when there is a crisis like that, they announce a hurricane or a disaster, they need to accumulate food and other resources. How do they do to... to well, they not often can they. So if you're calling for four days' worth of water and food and a, a, a car with a full tank of gas, that's easy for us to say who can afford it. It's not affordable for many who are at most at risk. Mm -hmm. And so that's when we focus relief and we focus assistance, those are the communities that should be at the forefront on getting that assistance. And the longer we wait, we, the federal government, we, the state, we, local private organizations, the longer we wait to provide that assistance, the more at risk these communities are. And as you saw from earlier disasters and from recent disasters, um, such as Irma uh, and Maria still in Puerto Rico, uh, it can lead to severe not only impact on their health, but so, or sometimes even death. 
Yeah, because how can you survive if you don't have drinkable water, no electricity, no food, no transportation, some no health care? How can these populations survive, actually? Exactly. And so um, while it's no longer on the headlines, uh, has headlines in the newspaper, we as public health professionals should continue to pay attention to that. And I really applaud the American Journal of Public Health to make these frontline stories known all over the world so that we can pay attention to those people who cannot afford it. You can't blame them. It's not their choice to live where they live or to have the paycheck they have. Mm -hmm. So in uh, your uh, editorial, in this uh, general issue, you mention community resilience and you say that uh, we need to elevate community re uh, resilience as a, as a public health uh, uh, priority. So what do you mean by resilience? Um, this is a very good question because there are many definitions of resilience. Some people uh, define resilience, resilience as ecosystem resilience to deal with flooding. Uh, some people re define the resilience as bouncing back from a, from a terrible experience. Resilience is actually more than that. Resilience is not only a, an opportunity or the chance or the capability to recover. Resilience is what you have innately, what your community assets are, but particularly where the gaps are for you to sustain health and well-being. Because of so, what we discussed before, they can't sustain health and well-being if they live from pay to paycheck, paycheck to paycheck. So what so, does uh, it mean in practice for us, for public health people, practice, to elevate right. resilience? In practice, it means that we cannot, we can no longer deal with diabetes or hypertension or violence um, or disasters or chemical exposures in a silo fashion. We need to deal with it in an integrated fashion, and we need to make community resilience, just as we're doing surveillance and education, we need to make it an essential public health service so that students in schools of public health, uh, public health department uh, uh, officials, uh, scientists such as you and I, need to deal with this in an integrated, holistic fashion, driven by symptom systems rather than driven by an individual disease. And has some of this uh, been done in, in New Orleans after Katrina? Yes, and I'm glad you asked that because now New Orleans is a national model and we actually have a resilience officer for the city. It's a national model of, for example, how to deal with wheelchair-bound po populations. We know at any point in time where those people live what kind of wheelchair they have, what kind of medication they need, and where they will be evacuated. It was uh, a tough lesson to learn. The, the Katrina lesson was a lesson for New Orleans, for the United States, and for all over the world. And yet, it is sad to see that still in Puerto Rico, some of those lessons were not learned. Yes. Yes, I agree. So thank you very much, Maureen. Thank you for your time and thank you for all you're doing with respect to natural and technological disasters. And thank you for the opportunity to chat um, and for the opportunity to publish the editorial. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Hurricanes don't have, if I may say, random effects. They hit in priority vulnerable communities. Therefore, protecting these communities should be part of the preparedness activity. But once a disaster has devastated a community, what can be done? Can this be an opportunity to build more resilient communities? This is the idea defended by Reed Toxon and his colleagues in the general issue of AJPH. Reed Toxon is managing director of Toxon Health Connection, a limited liability company located in Sandy Spring, Georgia. Dr. Toxon? Hello. How are you? I'm excited to be with you and to talk about this very important issue. So, Dr. Tuxon, where are you now? I am living in Atlanta, Georgia, and it's just terrific down here. I see. And in the, the January issue of the journal, you come with this provocative idea, you know, in the midst of a series of hurricane, wildfires, disaster, you say, well, these may be, and I quote you, opportunities for better health. Where, where did this idea come from? You know, it, it came because of having observed firsthand uh, not only the tragedies and, and the horrific nature of so many of the disasters, so many of the almost 60 disasters that visit our country every year, but what also it came from observing the, the, the sense of compassion from so many people in the health-related sector around the suffering of people for disasters. And so as a result of that, um, I was fortunate to have participated as the chair of a National Academy of Medicine uh committee um, that uh, looked at this notion of how do we prepare uh, communities uh, to be better able to sustain uh, disasters, but also how do we rebuild healthier communities. And, and that work was, was led really by some fantastic leaders in our federal government, in the Department of HHS uh, and other federal agencies. And so through all of that work, I really began to understand how important it is to get the message out so that we can do more than simply rebuilding uh, to suboptimal levels but take the $2 billion approximately that we spend every year in, in, in rebuilding from hurricanes and turn it into a health-improving opportunity. $2 billion, that's a lot. This document has been published, or is it available for the readers? I would urge everyone uh, to go to the National Academy of Medicine website and put in the name of the, bo of the, of the book uh, that is the report. is called Healthy, Resilient and sustainable communities after disasters. But if you just put in the word disasters at the National Academy of Medicine site, this report will pop up and really has uh, got chock full of information for anyone in the health and human services field uh, who cares about health promotion uh, and disease prevention. That's great. And so in 2005, so, so, uh, there was... Uh Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, and it was a major disaster, 2,000 deaths, etc. And I think it's, it's a case in point of your theory. Can, can you explain what happened after Katrina, which is positive in your view? 
Yeah, it was one of the things that I thought was extremely uh, encouraging by the response of so many people to Katrina was that they used it as an opportunity to really rebuild uh, their infrastructure for service delivery and for prevention. Let me give you an example. Um, After the hurricane, they had an 80 percent reduction um, in their hospital capacity and a 75 percent of their safety net uh, clinics closed. What they did was to create something called the Louisiana Healthcare Redesign Collaborative, which was focused on rebuilding primary care and prevention, quality of care, using IT resources intelligently, and broader insurance uh, coverage. As a result of their activity, they really created a sustainable infrastructure. But what also I think I learned and was excited the most about was their community prevention activities. They revitalized flooded areas as family parks and meeting centers. They engineered berms to serve as walking trails. They created something called the Crescent Park Trail, a safe place for walking and biking that featured a pedestrian bridge to give access to shared green spaces previously isolated by the railroad tracks. And then finally, what also encouraged me was their addressing food insecurity by a very enterprising person look, took empty lots and created community orchards that have been sustained by uh, philanthropy. So the point of it all is I think what Katrina teaches us is that we can absolutely think about rebuilding in a disaster in ways that create the opportunities for a healthier community, even healthier than prior to the disaster. And that's extremely important. That's that's absolutely fascinating. But my question to you is, are these communities in uh, New Orleans thinking that they are now healthier and more socially vibrant than they were before the disaster? Do we know that? <laughs> We do know that. We do know that. But what we also know, and this is one of the critical factors, is that from the experts that I have consulted, there is a much higher level of community resilience, the resilience as organized communities and resilience as individual members of communities. And this resilience factor is key not only to rebuilding, key not only to creating health, but also key in preparing to sustain the next crisis that occurs, because we know that the more resilient individuals and communities are, the more engaged that community infrastructures are uh, across different stakeholders, the better able they will have uh, be able to sustain uh, themselves and respond to the inevitable disasters that visit all communities eventually. Absolutely. And so when we think now of uh, Houston, of uh, Florida, of uh, Puerto Rico, what are the main uh, advices that you can give for them to, as you say it, I quote you, forethink uh, what's, what's coming and building uh, resilient communities rather than thinking after? Well, certainly I will respond to that. But the one thing I want to make sure that we don't miss is the lessons that we really have learned the most from all of this work is the importance of pre-disaster planning, that it is vital that the health sector combine with the disaster sector to envision the optimal healthy community. And then when we have a model of what the deficiencies are in our existing community infrastructure, then we 
can more easily plan to 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 uh, replace, fix, expand, enhance when uh, once the disaster occurs. For those communities that are undergoing the most recent of these tragedies, we really hope that they will be able to have a community shared vision of health. What does an optimally healthy Houston or Puerto Rico or whatever, what does that look like? And then make sure that we have the data that helps us to understand what the critical crises were, what the deficiencies were. And then let's have all of our stakeholders, whether they're community residents, community-based organizations, churches, civic associations, uh, elected and public officials, the health community, the health delivery community, all of these forces coming together to say, okay, now that we have an idea of a model of what we need and we have clear direction as to what our deficiencies were, now let's rebuild in a way that gives us the chance to have walking trails and green spaces and, and if it's food uh, is insecurity, to be able to now start to deal with food uh, uh, supply and healthy food supply. So that's what's really key is having a community-wide, multi-stakeholder conversation that's focused on the idea of what does it take for where we live, where we work, to be optimally healthy. Dr. Tuxon, this is a very inspiring message. Uh, we are fully convinced at the journal, and we want to accompany this, uh, this process. I think it, there will be uh, scientific and, and other issues raised, and, uh, and we'll try to follow it as the best we can. Thank you very much for your time and for these great ideas. Thank you bye for bye. covering it, and we really appreciate your leadership. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The last aspect of this public health science of hurricanes, or hurricanology, if I may say, uh, I'm making up the term, so I'm sh the last aspect of this uh, public health science of hurricane or hurricaneology, I suppose I'm making up the term, that we will cover today is their connection with climate change. The causal connection appears obvious to many, but is contested by some. Let's review this issue with Alistair Woodward, who is Head of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Hello, Alistair. Hello. Where are you? I'm in Auckland, uh, Auckland, New Zealand. Um, it's a baking hot day. Our summer is just getting underway. Wow. I'd like to get, you know, right into the heart of the issue that you uh, deal with in your editorial in, in the general issue of the journal. Are the hurricanes, you know, Harvey, Irma, Maria, and Nate, are they consequences of climate change? No, we can't say with confidence, you know, really, that these hurricanes were definitely caused by climate change, but climate change has certainly made events like Harvey more likely. Um, you know, you may have heard this analogy if a if a baseball player is taking anabolic steroids, it's impossible to say whether a particular home run was due to the drugs the player was taking, but performance enhancers like steroids 
you know, certainly increase the player's chance of hitting home runs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I think of climate change acting like a performance enhancer for the atmosphere. <laughs> Higher at temperatures, warmer oceans, they pump more energy into the troposphere, you know, the lower levels of the atmosphere. And more energy means higher wind speeds and more intense rainfall. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is that uh, the climate change increases the likelihood of these events? Yes, increases the likelihood of severe uh, intense events. Because, I mean, do steroids increase the likelihood of home runs? I think they do. Um, I mean, if you think about a home run as an extreme event in baseball terms, you know, it requires a, a particular power, uh, precision of swing. Um, I, I'm suggesting that uh, that there is, you know, a sort of analogy with what happens with uh, in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. We're not sure that um, climate change affects the frequency of storms, but the pretty good evidence um, and uh, good reason to believe that uh, you put more energy into the atmosphere, you increase the likelihood of storms being uh, being uh, intense. But so when we look at these events, you know, in the recent years or, or more, uh, you know, in the past, do, do we have any way to track, uh, you know, an indicator of whether there could be a correlation with uh, climate change? The, the the big problem is that the um, historical cyclone data are patchy, and it's very difficult to compare them with the output from modern surveillance systems. So, um, uh, being conservative and cautious, you know, it's difficult to tell really um, whether what the long-term trend in hurricane activity is. Um, also. Uh, Climate change effects emerge over over decades, you know. So I think I think the the view at the moment is that it's maybe too soon to see a, an unambiguous signal in terms of the time trends in um, hurricane um, frequency and severity. But there's no doubt about the correlation between uh, warming and severity of hurricanes in the recent period. So you look particularly at the surface temperature of oceans uh, and where those temperatures are high, um, then uh, we see more severe hurricanes such as the ones that affected the United States um, this year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, because uh, can't we look at the severity or the frequency? Because those were many, many uh, hurricanes this year, right? We had at least those four severe ones. Isn't there an increase in frequency of hurricanes across time? Or, well, what I meant about the um, the long term, the historical data being patchy, um, is that if you go right back to a hundred years ago or even eighty years ago, um, you know the ways in which uh, hurricanes were um, counted uh, were essentially um, ships traveling across the ocean and countering, you know, severe storms. Um, and obviously in an age of uh, far more intense travel and satellite monitoring, um, 
you, you get much more complete information in recent years than was available um, in early times. And so people say, yes, there appears to be more hurricanes and more severe hurricanes, but um, is it just that we were missing events, uh, you know, in the more distant past? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, th there are indicators such as hurricanes crossing the coast, and obviously they are more completely um, ascertained, but they're only a small sample of, of all the storms that occur. So uh, it's more difficult to see a, a clear trend in um, that uh, subcategory of, of events. Mm -hmm. But from a public health perspective, we have the impression that those, uh, those are disasters, you know, overall, whether they're hurricane or wildfire, etc., they're becoming a new normal. I mean, that, that's really much more part of uh, the regular activity of public health people than they used to be. Is it your impression too? Y yes, that, that's, that's true. And if you look at um, measures um, such as the impacts, the economic impacts, uh, the numbers of buildings destroyed, uh, the number of people who have to move, um, those measures of disruption, you know, certainly it's becoming far more common um, around the world uh, than in the past. And that's partly a consequence, of course, of being there being more people and more buildings in the way of harm. Uh, but in the last 20 or 30 years, um, there's no doubt, I think, that people in public health are spending more time um, working with the threat and the consequences of natural disasters, particularly those that are climate-related. Mm -hmm. And so, Alistair, whether one believes that uh, those events, I mean, those disasters are related to climate change, or whether one does not believe that this is the case, what does it change in terms of what we should do uh, to prevent the consequences or the disaster associated with future hurricanes or future wildfires? Well, in one sense, it doesn't matter. I mean, what we know what's needed for the sort of immediate response, uh, whether hurricanes or wildfires are due to climate change or not. You know, we need better disaster preparedness. We need more resilient health care. Um, but, but looking further ahead and looking at these things on a bigger scale, um, the climate change question is very important. You know, you think of big planning decisions like where cities should be built and how they're built. Uh, they, these have to take into account the effects of climate change. Um, for instance, there's a recent paper in PNAS that um, projects that Harvey-like flooding in Texas will be 20-fold more common by the end of the century, 20-fold more common. Um, and in these conditions, you know, old ways of coping just won't cut the mustard. They won't be sufficient. You, know, you think about town planning regulations, wetlands protection, building codes, the rules around flood insurance, you know, which is ridiculously cheap in the United States at present, highway investments, gas subsidies, um, emergency relief, all these sorts of things, uh, you know, thinking ahead to the kind of future that our kids and grandchildren will be facing, um, you, you know, there's no way we can ignore the, uh, the threat of climate change.
Yeah, yeah, that 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 makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, even if we cannot uh, connect uh, causally climate change with a specific hurricane, uh, planning for the next one, we have to take into consideration the rise of global temperature, the warming of the oceans, and everything else that can influence it. That that's what you're saying, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Alistair, I thank you very much for your time and bye-bye. Thank you. I enjoyed talking to you. Goodbye. Note that to be immediately informed about the papers soon to be published in AJPH or about calls for papers, follow me or follow the journal on Twitter. The music is by Kofu the Wonder Man, a master drummer from Nigeria, and the style is Juju music from the Yoruba ethnic group. In the second snippet, Kofo sings, Beware the evil makers, wicked people, the wrath of heaven is coming down to earth. Thank you for listening. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us at ajph.org or subscribe to our podcast on your podcast app. Hey, round, 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 round,